We have been back in this series, the Outlining the Story series. We started back last week, and um, if you remember, we had a million points to fill out, a bunch of blanks to fill out last week, just kind of catching us up to this point so we can move forward. So uh, this Outlining the Story series is about kind of taking a, 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 um, a broad brush, brushstroke view of the Old Testament. If you're looking for, you know, all the nuance of the Old Testament, um, all of what God is saying in the Old Testament, uh, you're not going to get it out of this series because that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to give kind of the general pencil sketch outline of uh, what God has been doing in the Old Testament history and what the authors of the Old Testament are trying to communicate to us about God's working in the world up until the coming of Christ. And so that's really what we're going to focus on is these broad brush jokes. And we started with these first principles, right? These things that if we don't get these things right, we're going to get a lot of other things wrong in life. And people do get a lot of these things wrong, and it causes lots of problems. We saw that God is the creator of everything, right? So because he's the creator of everything, he has rights to everything in all of creation. Because all of creation is his. Everything is his. Nothing is ours. Our lives aren't even ours. They're his. So all of us, were created by God, right? So our purpose in life, God gave us our purpose in life right from the beginning, which was to image him, right? To reflect God. And so even though we have messed things up and gotten far away from our intended purpose, our purpose is still to image God. And that's actually what God has brought us back to in Christ, are these people who have the ability to be conformed into the image of his son, right? So that we can reflect him and glorify him through his work in us. So this was my little illustration. We're not doing the whole Old Testament. We're just doing an outline of the Old Testament. Tom the turkey, not in his fullness, but in his uh, sketched outness there. Uh, that is what we're doing. And so like we've, we uh, had talked about, or we were talking about, is that we were created to image God, right? That was, the, that was the purpose for which we were created. And God actually gave us, in that imaging of him, he gave us choice. He gave us volition. He gave us the, the ability to make choices in life. The, the reason why he gave us choice was to choose him, right? That was the purpose for which we were given choice. Now, unfortunately, we took that choice as humans that was meant to love and serve our creator, and instead, we, we loved and served ourselves, right? And that's a, that's a continued process that exists today. The pattern of sin has continued from that time until now, and instead of submitting our will to him, being obedient to him uh, fully, we have chosen ourselves time and time and time again. And all we see is sin and destruction and death in our world. And the cause of that is us, not him, right? So many times when, th when things go wrong, when things go badly, when someone loses their life too young, right, we question and we go, why? Why, why would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? No, we can't put that at his feet. Death would not exist in the world except for us. We broke this thing. It's squarely on us. And so the question becomes, and by the way, we also saw this pattern throughout Genesis, right? The very next picture we have is Cain killing Abel, and then we have this picture of trying to build a tower to, to make a name for themselves, right? And God's like, man, if I don't step in, the humans are going to be able to do anything. They're capable of any sort of evil, and I can't let them stay together or it's just going to be a mess. 
And so he has to step in. So where do we go from here? If 1,800 plus years of humans trying to put right what Adam and Eve put wrong could not get it done, how do we do this thing? How do we put right what went wrong? We have to start with the fact that we can't put right what went wrong, right? That's been proven every year since the beginning of man. We can't redeem ourselves because we ourselves are unredeemable. We can't do a work in our lives because we don't have the capability to do that work in our lives. And so we need something more. We need something else. And that's really the point of the Tower of Babel story, is we need God to intervene, right? We need God to come and fix this thing, make this thing right, because we can't. We're going to start to see his plan for that today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are uh, just so thankful to be together. It was so good to worship this, this morning together and just exalt you for all that you've done, all that you've done through your son, all that you do in our lives on a daily basis through the work of your son, and um, just so thankful to be able to reflect on those things. As we get into um, Genesis today, Lord, I just pray that you would be the one teaching us this morning. You would be the one speaking to us through these truths that you have here. And more than anything, God, I, I want whatever you want from our morning. I, I want what, you to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish in each heart this morning. But from my vantage point, I think the thing we can get from this morning is recognition of who you are, the character of who you are, that you are someone who keeps his promises, that you are trustworthy. Because so many things in our lives try to draw us away and say, nah, you can't really trust God, you need to trust this. This is the place to put your confidence. And it's all empty, it's all worthless. May we see that you are the one to trust. And that when we trust you, no matter what's going on in our lives, there's this character of persistence and peace and joy that comes through that, that only you can produce. So may we just lay our lives at your feet, every aspect of our lives at your feet, and trust you, the one who's going to come through every time. Pray this all in your name. Amen. We're going to start in Genesis 12 this morning which is right after the last thing we looked at last week. And this is what it says. Now Yahweh said to Abram, who is Abraham, by the way, uh, same guy, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. So Yahweh talks to this guy, Abraham, and he tells him this. He gives him some conditions, okay, some things that Abram was supposed to do. He says, walk away from your home. Leave your extended family. Um, leave your father's house, which might sound like the same thing, but it's really not. You got to understand at this time in the ancient Near East, the, the, the reality of what was of life there was really kind of like clans, family groups of people who had bound together. Is that the right tense of that verb? Binded? Bound. They bind, bind it together? They, they bound together, right? They bound together. They bound together, and this is where your safety, your security, your financial resources, your whole life was wrapped around your clan, your family group. 
And it didn't just include blood relatives because what would happen is if you had a successful clan, then you would have other people who were looking at your clan going, we're pretty weak as a clan. We're going to come join your clan that's strong so that we can have some protection and some sustenance, right? So you have other people being added to this group. And as those groups got bigger and bigger and bigger, you had these things that were like city-states, Okay, there were these massive cities in which these clans lived. And sometimes they would have protective walls, which was amazing in that time. If you had that, that was a really good thing to have. And so you're a part of this household, okay? this household of, of people that provide for you. And so what Yahweh's asking Abraham to do here is to leave all of that. Leave all of that protection, leave all of that security, leave all of that, uh, leave his future, right? His future would have been wrapped up in his family circumstances. To leave probably a large group of trained family members who were their soldiers and go out and I'm not even going to tell you where you're going to go. You're just going to go. Just start walking. Just put one foot in front of the other. I don't know about you, but if I lived in that time, which was kind of like the wild, wild west, this would be the last thing that I would want to do. But Yahweh gives him some information about if he follows through on this. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He said, if you do this, which by the way, this whole thing is, is set up in ancient Near Eastern like contractual language, okay? It's what we would call a covenant, okay? And this is the first part of the covenant. But a covenant is, is, not, a very, is not like a super spiritual thing. Co- covenants were very common at this time. It's simply, and it's not a hard concept to understand, it's simply a contract, like when, um, when you sign up for Netflix, any Netflix watchers in here? Okay, how about Amazon Prime, Hulu? Okay, any of those, right? Like uh, when you sign up for that, like one of the things you do is it takes you to this page with a bunch of text, right? And, you, and do we read the text? No, we just scroll down and we go, yeah, I agree, right? Because we don't want to read all that legalese stuff. But what you're doing is you're entering into a contract with them, right? Like Netflix is saying, I will provide you, or we will provide you all of these movies and TV shows and stuff, and you can stream them. But you have some responsibilities too. You've got to pay your monthly dues, right? Uh, You've got to make sure you don't record any movies that we stream to you. You can't do that, right? So you have your side of the contract too. That's the idea here. Is it's just a contract that Yahweh is making with this guy, Abraham. You do this, Abraham. Go, leave your family, leave that security, leave your relatives, right? And I will do this for you. I will make you a great people. Nation is not the best word there. Nations, how we think of nations, didn't really exist at that time. So I will make you a great people, meaning you will have, you will have lots of numbers, Okay, because numbers were important at this time, right? The bigger your clan was, the better you were, right? I will also make your people strong and powerful. I will give you wealth and influence. That's the greatness of what he's talking about here, right? And he says, you yourself will be blessed. You will have wealth and influence and strength and power. You just have to leave. You just have to take that first step. And I'm going to come through with the rest, 
And not only that, he says, you shall be a blessing. You will bless others. Others will benefit from your strength and your power and your wealth and your influence. And he also says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. People who treat you well, they'll be treated well. Do you think that's a motivator for people? If they start to figure this out, hey, when we treat this guy well, it goes well for us. Do you think that's going to want them to treat, cause them to treat him well later? Of course. They're like, this works out, right? If people treat you badly, I'm going to treat them badly. Well, let's avoid treating Abraham badly because that's no good. And then he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. What's interesting about this promise is that this promise is never fulfilled in Abraham's life. It's not fulfilled in Isaac and Jacob after him. It is not even fulfilled when Moses is writing these words. Moses doesn't really know what this phrase means. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. Because in Moses' time, all the families of the earth had not been blessed by Abraham. But he said, it's, it's coming. It's going to happen. And it does. We know it happens, right? This is covenant language, contractual language. Abraham, you do your part, I'll do my part. So look at the next, next verse. It says, so Abram went away as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the people which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Did Abraham hold up his end of the bargain? Yeah. He did what he was supposed to do. Leave. Go. I'll show you where you're going to go. And Abraham takes that step. Now, the important thing to understand here is, or, or to focus in on here is, it's not about the step that Abram took. It's not the five steps he took. It's not the fact that he walked all the way down the road and left his family behind. It's what caused him to take that first step, right? It's what, it was the motivation behind why he could take that first step is that he trusted Yahweh. If he had no trust in Yahweh, he would be like, no way. I'm not leaving this safety and security. Are you kidding me? Not going to happen. Do you know what happens to people out there? But he trusted him. He said, yeah. I will do exactly what you asked me to do. In fact, there's a phrase in there, as Yahweh had spoken to him, the exact way, the exact thing that Yahweh had told him to do, he did. He packed up his wife. He packed up his stuff. His nephew Lot comes along with him. He has some people from Haran that came with him, which were like his household, his immediate household, right? Servants and their families came along with him. Which again, were these people who were looking for safety and security. This was a common thing to have servants that needed safety and security. If I couldn't provide for my family, like my, my children are going to starve, and I know that this family can provide for us, I'm going to go serve this family so they can provide for my family, right? And so families grew that way. And his family had grown that way. This all required faith. Shifting his trust from his family situation, his city-state, his protection, and shifting all of that to Yahweh. 
Hebrews 11.8 says this very succinctly, what's going on here. He said, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left not knowing where he was going. He had no clue. But do you see what the key is here? If you you read Hebrews 11, it's all about what? Faith. Faith is the key thing here. It's not the obedience. The obedience followed faith. Faith is the key thing. Obedience was just obvious at that point. It, It was inevitable. So, they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanites were in the land at the time. And Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. So he goes to this place, Canaan. He didn't know where he was going, but that's where he ended up going. And God adds to this contractual agreement that they have. Okay? This is like when you get that email from Netflix that says we've updated our terms, you know, and you have to like re-agree to the terms, right? This is Yahweh updating the terms, clarifying the terms. He said, not only will you be great, will your descendants be great, uh, will I bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and the whole world will be blessed by you, but also your people will have a physical land that will be your land. And look around Abram, this is it. As far as you can see, your people will inhabit this land. Now, what's interesting is it also says that there were some people in this land, right? This was not an abandoned plot of land. There were these Canaanites, which again, for Abraham to trust God or or to believe him to buy this, he would have to trust that God's going to do something about that situation, right? He's going to address that situation, it's trust, it's faith. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is Yahweh makes a binding contract with Abraham that includes conditions and promises if those conditions were met. Yahweh makes a binding contract with Abraham that includes conditions and promises if those conditions were met. The important thing is, and we don't have this here, is that if Abram had not hypothetically left his family, would God have kept up his end of the bargain? No, it's a contract, right? Abram had to do his part. Let's see if Yahweh's going to do his part. This is the very next story. And the reason why I keep saying this, I said this last week, like this is the very next story, is I want us to understand this is how the narrative is meant to be understood. He's going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to show us something. Look what he's about to show us. Look at verse 10. He says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a time because the famine was severe in the land. You got to understand famine equaled death at that time. Uh, You were going to die unless you did something about it very quickly. You and your whole family. Okay. So there's a famine in the land and Abraham takes his group, his crew, down to Egypt to find food. The reason for that is Egypt was typically a pretty good place to go when there was a famine because they had this whole Nile River thing going on, which made it really a good place. It's why Egypt was so powerful for so many centuries. It was a place that you could go when you were in famine. So he's going there to try to find some help, right? 
Look at 11. It came about when he was approaching Egypt that he said to his wife, Sarai, this is Sarah, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, for that I may live on account of you. All right, Abraham. So here we go, right? So they're headed into Egypt, right? And he's like, woman, you're hot, right? That's a paraphrase, of course, but right? Like, you are so beautiful, and I know how our world works, the world at that, that time. And this is how the world works. This was might is right world, right? So he's like, you know what? If they see how beautiful you are and they want you, they're going to kill me to get you. And that was a real reality. He was probably right about that. So he said, you know what? Let's just say you're my sister, okay? Which there was some truth to that, but it was, this is, he's not speaking truth here, okay? We'll just say that you're my sister and things will go well for me, right? I'll live on account of you. Okay, Abraham, let's see how this lie works out here. 14, now it came about when Abram entered Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Ah, he was right, right? Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's household. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake, and he gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So they go into the situation, the plan works like a charm, right? The lie works, which by the way, if you think we need to read these narratives like they're moral lessons in our lives, that's a real problem, right? Because the moral lesson here would be, you know, offer your wife up to rich people and you'll make out well in life, right? That's not a good moral lesson to take here. That's not, that's not the point, But that's what happened. Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's household. He wants to make her his wife. And Abram gets treated super well. In fact, literally this is the description here. Now, we might not think this is big, verse 16 there, but in the ancient Near East, basically this guy was loading upon Abraham wealth, like a huge amount of wealth. He was making Abraham rich. Now, is this a lesson in how to get rich quickly? No, no. (laughs) If I could throw my wife under the bus to get some cash, do it. No, that's not what it's saying, right? But it is telling us something very, very important, which is God is keeping his promise. I will bless you. You will make out. Things will go well for you. You will become great. Abram is starting to become great. Now, how he's becoming great is a little problematic for us, right? We're like, we don't like this. This is not the way that things are supposed to go. When you do things morally wrong like Abraham is doing, then you should be punished for that. And we want every Bible lesson to tell us that. If this was a moral lesson, it's not a moral lesson. It's telling us something about who God is. Is God keeping his promise here? Yes, he is. 
He goes on, verse 17. But Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What has this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for myself as a wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Yahweh sends plagues upon Pharaoh because Pharaoh took Sarai as his wife, Abram's wife, as his wife. And he's like, take her away and all that belongs to you, which is also all the riches he's already loaded up on him, right? Take everything. Just go. Just get out of here, right? I'm done. I'm done with these plagues. So Abram leaves this situation loaded, rich. Now the question is, if this is not a moral lesson, what is the author, the narrator, trying to communicate to us in this? Why did Yahweh do this? In our estimation of fairness, this seems pretty unfair. Can we agree? Like, Pharaoh is morally innocent due to his ignorance. He had no idea, right? And he gets the bad end of the stick. And Abram is morally a scumbag, right? This reminds me of, like, I never saw this movie, but I remember, like, when ads came out for it, it, like, in the mid-'90s. Do you guys know the the movie Indecent Proposal? Right? This is indecent proposal, right? It's the idea that this rich guy comes to this couple and says, if I can sleep with your wife, I'll make you guys rich, right? This is indecent proposal. And when I saw the previews for that movie, I was like, oh, my skin was crawling. I'm like, that's gross. Why would anybody want to watch that movie, right? This is gross. Why does anybody want to watch this movie, right? It's because Yahweh is a promise keeper. That's it. Did God bless Abraham? Yes. Is he beginning to make his name great, make him a man of power and influence? Yeah. The Pharaoh of Egypt is scared of this guy, right? Did he curse those who cursed Abraham? Yeah, the guy didn't even know he was doing anything wrong to Abraham, but Yahweh curses him for doing wrong to Abraham. The point is, God's a promise keeper. He does what he says he's going to do. This is not Abraham's story. This is Yahweh's story. And when we focus on Abraham and make him some sort of a, you know, a hero... Is this dude a hero in this situation? He's not a hero. He's a scumbag. The hero is God. He's doing what he said he would do. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is as Abraham keeps up his end of the deal, God shows himself to be faithful to the promises he made. As Abraham keeps up his end of the deal, God shows him to be faithful to the promises he made. Literally the very next scene, we have this. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. 
Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Look at verse 5. Now, Lot, who went with Abram, which is a key phrase, he went with Abram, he was hanging out with Abram this whole time, also had flocks, herds, and tents. And the land could not support both of them while living together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. They were too rich, right? And you got to understand, riches in this time was livestock, right? Lots and lots and lots of livestock. So they've got all this livestock, and they've got a limited space to be in where that livestock can graze, and so they're just too rich to be with one another, right? Why is Lot rich? Abraham, right? And you shall be a blessing, Abram. He was a blessing to Lot. He's making out. Lot is, 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 is loaded, right? Look at this. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are all relatives. Is the entire land not before you? Please separate from me. If you choose the left, then I will go right. If you choose the right, I will go left. Lot raised his eyes and saw all the vicinity of Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt going toward Zor. He looks over to the vicinity of the Jordan, and the description here is crazy about how amazing this land was. Okay? There was water everywhere. you got to understand, in the ancient Near East, agricultural society, water was everything for farming and agriculture. And he's like, there's water everywhere, right? And it was so lush, so green, that he was comparing it to the Garden of Eden. He's like, it's that amazing, right? There's a clear choice to be made here. Obviously, this side is great, right? So, he makes the the wise choice, it seems like. So, Lot chose for himself all the vicinity of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. So, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the vicinity of the Jordan and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Lot chooses the best land, water flowing everywhere, lush, The future looks bright for Lot, right? He's loaded, and he's got all of the resources to continue to be loaded, right? His business is going to be very successful, right? Seems like. Oh, I missed one, too. He actually said it's like the land of Egypt, right, which we already talked about, right? Egypt was was one of the greatest civilizations on earth, and it was because of the Nile River, right? It was so fertile. And he's like, this land is so fertile, My people might even become as great as Egypt one day. This is Lot's thinking. Things could not be going better. So right after this, we're not going to read through it, but right after this, a big war breaks out. Two large coalitions of kings go to battle one another. One of those kings that was part of one of those coalitions was King Bera of Sodom. Which when you get to that place in the text, it should be a thing that you go, oh, uh uh-oh. Because who is near Sodom? 
Lot is near Sodom. Uh Uh-oh. Look at verse 8 of chapter 14. It says, And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they lined up for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Chedolaumir, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar, El- Elasar, sorry, four kings against five. Should have left that part out. I didn't have to read all those names. <laughs> Verse 10. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Lot loses everything. And the question should immediately be, why? Why, I guess two, two questions, why? Why did Lot lose everything? And why does Moses include the account of Lot losing everything? Why talk about this at all? The key is in verse 6. Verse 6 says, they were not able to remain together. The first picture we have of Lot splitting off from Abram. He's with Abram. Things are going peachy keen, right? Things are awesome. He is wealthy beyond imagining. They split up in what seems like it's going to be a better deal for Lot than it is for Abram. And the first picture we have is Lot gets all of his stuff taken. God's contract is with Abraham. Abraham's fine. This whole war that's going on, Abraham makes out no problem. Abram's the one with God's promises. So, thankfully, the one with God's promises does this. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out trained men born in his house, numbering 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And then he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the other people. Abram not only saves Lot and gets back all of Lot's wealth, but he also gets all of the other wealth that all these other kings had taken from this war that was being waged, right? All the stuff they had gotten to this point. Keep in mind, wars were, if you were on the right side of a war, it was a great way to enrich your kingdom. That's why they had wars all the time. Because you would not only get their stuff, their livestock and all that kind of stuff, and maybe even cities, fortified cities and those kind of things, but you'd also get more people, and more people meant more security and a larger influence, right? So Abraham goes and he brings back all of this stuff, right? Look at 18. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. 
and he gave them a tenth of everything. So you have a guy, Melchizedek, coming out with uh, bread and wine. They're having kind of a, a powwow of some of the, the, the kings from the area. And he clearly is recognizing why Abraham won the battle, right? It was God Most High who did that. Melchizedek, even though he is a, seems to be a follower of Yahweh, he doesn't know God's personal name, Yahweh, so he doesn't use it. He uses God Most High, right? He recognizes who's at work here. And so Abram honors Melchizedek with 10% of all the spoils, okay, which was a way in that time of, of honoring another king. Look at 21. He says, then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. So you do not say I have made Abram rich. See that? The king of Sodom's like, hey, you know what? I'll make you a good deal. Because remember, the king of Sodom was hiding up in the hills somewhere, right? He had just been beaten, right? He comes and he's like, he's really grateful to, to Abram for Abram doing what he did. So he said, you know what? Just give me my people back. You can have all the spoils, right? You can have all of our stuff that got, got taken in the battle. And Abram says, nope, you take it. I don't need your stuff because I know who provides, right? I know who is, has made promises to me that I will be made rich. You will never make me rich. Only God Most High will do that. Hopefully you see this connection between Abraham's trust in Yahweh and trust in this agreement that they had made. And also Yahweh's ability to keep his promises over and over and over and over again. Which seemed to cause or at least sustain Abraham's trust in the promise-keeping God. He is definitely making his name great. Right? You have these kings coming and going, man... You're awesome, right? God keeping his promises. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, God's covenant was with Abraham, so it was Abraham who was blessed, Abraham who became great, and Abraham to whom the promises were kept. Now, what we might not love about this story is Lot's troubles, right? And people that are not even mentioned here, right? Like people who lived in the area who were not being made great like Abraham was being made great. He was being singled out for this unique contractual agreement that Yahweh had with no other person on the planet. And in our idea of fairness, we go, well, that's not fair. Why does Abram get all this stuff? And our usual answer to that, or at least the way we reconcile it in our brain is, well, it's because Abraham was a good guy, right? He did the right stuff. Abraham didn't do the right stuff, but he did do the stuff that was required of the covenant, didn't he? He did walk away from his home. He did step out in faith and trust in who God was. And God came through every time. 
God is keeping his promises. Go out from your country, he did that. From your relatives, he did that. From your father's house, he did that. To the land I will show you, he did that. And Yahweh will make him a great nation. It's already starting. It's already way up there, right? But it's going to get bigger. I will bless you. He's definitely blessing you. I will make your name great. His name has clearly been made great in just a couple of chapters. You shall be a blessing. We see that in the life of Lot. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. We see that in the story of Pharaoh, right? And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, we're not there yet. But this is a hint as to what God is doing in the Old Testament. He starts with working with one man that's going to end up blessing the whole earth. And we now live as blessed people. Can we agree? We're that phrase. We're a part of this phrase, right? Because God keeps his promises. We are evidence that God keeps his promises. Because we are a fulfilled promise to Abraham. I agree with the Apostle Paul when we think about these things. He says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. He's a promise keeper. We can trust him. The question is, not whether he can be trusted, but whether we're going to take that step when he asks us to. That step he calls us to, and we go, man, that, that looks pretty shaky. In fact, if I step out on that, and you don't come through, God, things are going to go bad. Look at Abraham. Think about Abraham. Think about what happened a lot. If Abraham had left his, his people and the protection there without Yahweh keeping his promises, where would Abraham be today? He'd be a slave somewhere. He would be a conquered group of people, no question. But God came through. So I think for me, what, what I reflect on is, what is that thing that God is calling to me right now that I know if I don't trust him, it's going to go bad in my life? It's going to fall apart. And am I willing to say, God, I trust you? Let me pray for us. Lord, we're just so thankful for this, this account that doesn't put Abram in a very good light, but it puts you in, in, in an amazing light, an accurate light, that you are a God who can be trusted. That even when circumstances around our life are, are kind of screaming at us, you know, run away, trust in yourself, depend on yourself, lean on your own understanding, this story just gently calls us to trust in you, to trust in the one who has made not these promises, but other promises to us. Lord, we just want to live in a place of dependence. We want to live in a place in which our decisions throughout our day are all in dependence upon you, trusting in you to come through, not our own wisdom, not our own strength, but you. Please help us to learn to be dependent, learn to walk in you, learn to walk in step with what you're doing. Pray this all in your name.